are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up with step number 15 on purity and chastity. And we're about halfway through this step. And we are picking up this evening with paragraph number 42 at the bottom of page 145, if you're following along in the text. There's a few couple people entering here yet. I'll let them get set. I'll get going. So again, paragraph 42. During temptation, I have felt that this wolf was producing incomprehensible joy, tears, and consolation in my soul. But I was really being deceived when I so childishly thought to have fruit from this and not harm. And so there can be times in the spiritual life that we experience temptation uh, as a kind of consolation, as a kind of spiritual consolation. And uh, this is what can make it extremely dangerous for us, Uh, almost a kind of delusion that we get wrapped up in, that we can spiritualize uh, our own desires and the things that we want for ourselves, our appetites in, in this life, and convince ourselves that they're good and true, that, uh, that will not only find fulfillment within them, but that it is something that is desired by God. And uh, as we've mentioned many times before, we have a near infinite capacity for self-delusion and for coming up with Uh, things to convince ourselves to take this or that path. And so John uh, could see it within his own life uh, during the temptations that often would surround this particular passion in particular, that it could appear to him to be something uh, that brought great, uh, great joy and consolation to him, simply even to take hold of the thoughts that would eventually lead him uh, to the passion. And so the the level of awareness and spiritual maturity and self-examination has to be great for us here, as well as the discipline uh, that surrounds in ordering uh, our our bodily appetites. Number 43, every other sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body, And this is certainly because the very substance of the flesh is defiled by pollution, which cannot happen in other sins. Uh, I imagine we could probably think of some others where that might be true, where it touches the body, 
but I think what he's saying is that when we give ourselves over to this particular passion, that the, the body in essence is something that is a part of it. That uh, once we've given ourselves over to the, the thoughts and the ideas, the images that go along with uh, impurity, that inevitably the body becomes involved. And again, this is part of our makeup as, as human beings. And so I think it's given so much attention because it does affect us so fully. And we've talked in the past that in regards to even our prayer, that the involvement of the whole self in that prayer is so important, that we move from the notional to the real, to, to move the mind into the heart. And so the more that we can uh, involve our whole self in our prayer and things such as fasting and prostrations, the, the greater we can give our, ourselves and our attention over to God. And uh, so similarly here, I think because the, the, the body and its appetites and, uh, are so integrally involved in the temptation that uh, it touches us, us deeply. And, uh, and because it does, it often uh, rests within the imagination and memory. And so it sort of uh, perpetuates itself for us because it's uh, awfully, often becomes very deeply rooted within us. Number 44, I should like to ask why in the case of every other sin, do we usually say that People have slipped, and simply that. But when we hear that someone has committed fornication, we say sorrowfully, so-and-so has fallen. And so he does this a couple times throughout this step, putting a question like this before us. You know, what, why is it that we would call it a fall? Uh, that there is something in its magnitude, I think John is trying to say here, that is reminiscent of the fall of man, that there is a turning in upon ourselves and in, in such a way that, that pulls us away from God. And again, because so much of ourselves can be wrapped up in this sin, you know, all of our feelings, imagination, thoughts, that the, the movement away from God or that which sort of blocks God out of our consciousness and silences the conscience or darkens the noose, the eye of, of the heart, that it can be uh, described as a, as a fall rather than a, a slip, that it's not something that is easily, uh, something that we easily regain uh, our footing from. You know, a person who slips can sort of carry on in, often within the spiritual life, but fornication is often something that, that really uh, upends us and uh, causes great harm and uh, makes it very difficult for us to move forward. A fish swiftly escapes a hook and a sensual soul shuns solitude. So a fish, when it sees and recognizes that there's not something right about this, that it's, it's not uh, uh, what it's looking for for food. Uh, so a soul that is seeking simply sensual pleasure, the fulfillment of the, the needs of the flesh, is going to shun solitude. 
that it's going to flee solitude like a flea, like a fish flees from uh, the movement or of of a lure of false bait, and so solitude is something that draws us into a greater intimacy with God and allows us then also to have uh, the capacity for greater discernment, to be attentive to our thoughts and the movements uh, of the flesh. And so a person who's really deeply immersed in, in their uh, sins of the flesh and are seeking to satisfy them, or they're, they're going to run away uh, from solitude and seek to fill their, uh, their days with noise in one way or another, distraction, you know, whether it's through the media or interactions with others or busyness, you know, anything that prevents them from looking deep within. And, uh, and so it becomes, very, it's very difficult with this particular sin, uh, not to have one's conscience rebuke one, oneself. And, uh, and so we have to distract ourselves, I think, in other ways. Uh, so that we don't hear that voice in order to continue on without uh, it feeling a kind of internal dis-ease. Any comments so far? Okay. When the devil wishes to tie two people to each other by a shameful bond, he works on the inclinations of both of them, and then the lights of the fire of and then lights the fire of passion. And so works on the inclinations of each individual. And so th there might not be a clear desire for sin or intention uh, that exists there, but uh, the evil one will in a subtle way uh, work on certain tendencies that we have. And uh, whether it's, you know, a sense of humor that we have or the, the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we engage each other in conversation, uh, all of these things can come in, into play. Uh, sensibility and sensuality, so physical attraction as well as a kind of emotional attraction to the other. Uh, can then lead to this inclination that would lead a person then into fornication. And so, you know, having an attraction to another because of their personality or their intelligence or their sense of humor is not something wrong. The, there's not something evil about that. But the evil one can use these things uh, to draw us into a kind of familiarity in a relationship and the way that we relate to others the time that we spend with them that then pulls us in that direction or where we allow ourselves to be pulled because of an underlying inclination that already exists. Uh, often this is how it happens, you know, within marriages, you know, somebody, uh, it's rare that a spouse has every single quality that's going to speak to the heart of their husband or wife that inevitably one, we're going to meet somebody that has just you know, a wonderful sense of humor or loves the same things that we love or reads the same books that we read, loves the same art or, and uh, where it's easy to strike up a conversation with them. Whereas sometimes with one's spouse, those things can become, you know, we, there's a familiarity that develops within that relationship that, but then leads us to take it for granted. 
And so when someone uh, comes along who has these other qualities that enliven something within us, uh, and in, in particular, it can be this inclination to satisfy our underlying desires, desires for intimacy and physical intimacy, that then uh, we can engage in a different kind of familiarity uh, in the way that we relate to another person without guarding our hearts and our words and the way, again, that we look at others and the time that we spend with them. I remember when uh, uh, Pence was vice president, and I think it came out at one point that he, he never went out to dinner uh, with a woman alone. You know? And there was a kind of mockery uh, that was directed towards him because of that. And yet there was something there about his relationship with his wife. Not that he didn't trust himself so much, uh, although he probably knew better than to trust himself, uh, trust himself, but he would not also want to put his wife in a position where she would feel any kind of discomfort. And it might seem like a kind of old fashioned mentality or sensibility uh, to us. Uh, but I think what John is talking about here is that these subtle things uh, uh, can have uh, an impact upon us in terms of the, the path that we eventually take. And uh, again, it can be, begin with things that are relatively benign and uh, we, that wouldn't in and of themselves lead us into sin, but become coalesce into a kind of state of mind that makes us more vulnerable. Uh, let's see, number 47. Those who are inclined to sensuality often seem sympathetic, merciful, and prone to compunction, while those who care for chastity do not seem to have these qualities to the same extent. That's a rather unusual statement, don't you think? I mean, when I first read it, it seemed rather peculiar, because John is, is saying here that uh, those who are actually inclined to uh, kind of hypersensuality are on the surface actually going to see more, seem more sympathetic and open and compassionate and e even prone to compunction, you know, that on the, on the surface, they seem to show these qualities of one who would be uh, prudent or would be watchful of heart. But it really can be more of an emotionalism or uh, a veneer of virtue rather than being uh, the real thing. That chastity involves setting a kind of boundaries, setting kinds of boundaries, and uh, in such a way that it might make a person seem unsympathetic or uh, unmerciful that they don't engage or share what is going on internally on an emotional level as freely as many do. And sometimes we will admire that quality in others. They seem so open and so caring and they share so much uh, about their life freely with others and almost indiscriminately. But John is saying here that, you know, as individuals who realize that we can have underlying inclinations towards particular sins, 
that we would be so watchful of our hearts and desire uh, to be so attentive that we set the, the boundaries rather high, high and wide even, uh, the walls wide, high and wide in order to guard and protect our, ourselves and our virtue as well as the virtue of others. And again, this is something that's really not part of the modern mindset, uh, you know, in terms of like courting, you know, the age when that would take place, that there would be chaperones that, you know, would be present for such things. And, you know, all those things were of a past time and past culture. And, uh, and yet, you know, I think we might see ourselves as being more liberated in that regard and more open and maybe more capable of talking about uh, these aspects of human nature uh, when in reality we're more blind, I think, to the power of them. Not that they're evil, but that there is such a strength and power to these aspects of who we are as human beings that we have to respect that power both in ourselves and others. And the respect for it then would be revealed in the fact that we don't engage in a kind of over-familiarity uh, with others in the way that we relate to them and that we do maintain certain boundaries in, in relationships. And, you know, so many cases of marital infidelity probably begin very innocently, you know, and often maybe within the context of work uh, where people meet and begin to engage each other. It seems to be a rather common story in any case. Any thoughts about this, or in particular, the last statement? Blind to the consequences. Yes, you know, I think that is often what happens, you know, that uh, when we don't maintain those boundaries, we lose sight of things. And we've often in this group talked about the, the word infatuation, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but I, I read about it as, you know, in grad school, you know, many years ago, and it just stuck with me. And the, the word means, uh, the etymology of the word is infatuous, false light. And that it, again, you know, I'm sorry for again, repeating myself. Uh, I need to come up with some new material, guys. Uh, sorry to repeat myself so, so often, but uh, it was- You're doing great, you're doing great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, but uh, in the desert, there was this phenomenon when someone was lost at night, that they would see a light in the desert and they would think it was a fire, a camp. And so they would head toward that light thinking there, they would find comfort, security, warmth, protection uh, of others. And, and, but in reality, it was an optical illusion. So they could be traveling off in the distance, in the dark, hoping to find such a place, but never come upon it. And, and so become lost and, uh, and perhaps never find their, their, their way back out, out of the desert. And, uh, and often I think this happens uh, in so many of our relationships that they will begin with this kind of infatuation uh, where couples become enamored with each other or with specific qualities 
but things move along so quickly in our day and age that there isn't this kind of discernment of the character of the other uh, or you know of of their beliefs and uh, or how they engage in relationships what their real desires are that people uh, throw themselves uh, into relationships with not, not thinking of the consequences at all in fact uh, uh, the the common term at the universities is hooking up the people will hook up simply for a night and with another individual even if they don't know them at all and uh, and so some of the students, some of the Catholic Christian students created, you know, these talks called, uh, I forget what it was called, like Unhooked or something like that uh, was the, the title of it. But it was addressing this, uh, you know, very real issue within the university culture. Uh, and certainly so, social media uh, has helped that move along. You know, I forget what some of them are, are some of the social media apps are geared directly towards that, aren't they? Uh, these days where they sort of foster this kind of hookup culture. And, uh, and so we see that what John, John is talking about here then, and it's extreme, you know, this kind of blindness to the consequences altogether. All and uh, whereas what he's writing about, I think seeks to heighten it for us. Again, not by making what is good evil, but allowing us to see it for what it is. You know, something that is given to us by God, but also has great power and effect upon us as human beings. Uh, Nathan writes, there's a reason all the tradition sounds like broken records. New material isn't the need, uh, isn't the need just truth again and again. Thank you. <laughs> it never feels like repetition, only reinforcement. I hope so. Uh, that... Uh, I find that to be the, the case, that more often than not, I'm preaching to myself in that regard. Uh, and I think that's probably why these things come to mind. Uh, Louise writes, hooking up may be to avoid aloneness at all cost. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, because I, I think in our age, despite, uh, again, the seeming connectedness that we have and all the things that we do within our culture to foster this kind of inclusivity uh, the password used to be community, fostering community. I think now it's like this inclusiveness, engaging everyone and inviting everyone. Uh, but I think more and more, though, what we see in our day and age is a radical kind of isolation. And uh, I think where we saw it most of all was with COVID, that it isolated people because of the virus and it magnified, I think, what already was present, that the amount of depression, anxiety that people experienced during that period of time uh, skyrocketed. And most every therapist I know does not have, is not taking any new clients. They just, they can't and haven't been able to for, for years. And people that I know who are looking for someone can't find someone to get an appointment with. And, uh, but again, these are things that we, we, we don't consider. So this avoidance of alone, aloneness or being isolated at any cost, I think, right, people are willing to set aside anything in order to feel uh, a momentary intimacy, you know, no matter how fleeting it is and meaningless it is, it can 
offer a, a moment of solace. And when there isn't uh, much else, I think, going on within one's mind and heart, or one doesn't hold on, uh, have anything else to hold on that uh, gives them or shapes their identity or gives them hope, I think then the temptation to move to these kinds of fleeting forms of satisfaction begins to grow. Uh, Deborah writes, hookup culture isn't just on universities. No, I know that. <laughs> uh, it just seems to be pretty, pretty prevalent uh, there these days. Okay. Let's see. Those who are, I'm sorry, number 48. A certain learned man put a serious question to me saying, what is the gravest sin apart from murder and denial of God? And when I said to fall into heresy, he asked, then why does the Catholic Church receive heretics who have sincerely uh, anathematized their heresy and consider them worthy to partake in the mysteries? While, on the other hand, when a man who has committed fornication is received, even though he confesses and forsakes his sin, the apostolic constitutions order him to be excluded from the Immaculate Mysteries for a number of years. I was struck with bewilderment, and what perplexed me then has remained unsolved. So it's interesting. He's saying, you know, what, why is it then when individuals fall into something such as heresy, where they deny the faith and yet repent of that, and, and as he says, anathematize their own heresy and so uh, forsake it. Why is it then that they are received back into Holy Communion? Whereas those who have committed sins of the flesh often are given penances that can last up to years. And I don't know if people took the time to read the, the footnote, but it was rather enlightening. And I think we look back at this and oh, there's kind of a little bit of a horror that comes over us when we hear about the penances of the past, you know, in terms of the, the depth of the fasting and even something like this being excluded from Holy Communion that, uh, you know, that it would be unheard of today. And I think it would create certainly, uh, you know, uh, uh, a harsh response and uh, from the penitent, but also probably from one superiors or a bishop. And I'm not saying that priests should do this indiscriminately, but I think it's helpful for us to understand why, where that emerged from, that we often will hold the grace of God cheaply or cheap, and we will avail ourselves of the sacrament perhaps not understanding the magnitude of the wound that we bear, nor the healing balm that is needed in order that we might not backslide, that our repentance might be something that becomes deeply rooted and that rids our minds and of our hearts uh, from our attachment, not only to the sin, but to the things that lead to the sin. And so if you don't mind, I just want to go through that footnote, because I think some of the things that are said are, are valuable here in terms of the rest of our discussion. Uh, six, uh, 
number 16 here, heresy is a deviation of the mind from the truth and a sin of the mouth or tongue, whereas fornication is a sin of the whole body, which damages and depraves all the feelings and powers of the body and soul, darkens the image and likeness of God in man, and is therefore, fair call, therefore called a fall, alluding to what we he had mentioned earlier in the text. Heresy comes from presumption, while fornication comes from bodily comfort. Therefore, heretics are corrected by humiliation and sensualists by suffering. We add the gist of the Greek note. Uh, obviously, heresy is the greatest of sins, but since the passion of fornication has a tyrannical power due to pleasure and attracts attention, it often causes men to fall after repentance. Therefore, the fornicators depart debarred for periods from the holy mysteries that he may not return to his vomit and jeopardize his salvation. It also serves to put fear in all and make them struggle against their passions by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Heresy is a mental passion that springs from error and ignorance uh, or from ambition and vainglory. But when the evil is removed, it is no, long, no longer causes conflict or trouble. Further, the spiritual education aims at cutting off cutting out evil by the root. By the practice of a strict life, fornicators are trained to forget the pleasure of lust. For whereas the evil of heresy lies only in the mind, the passion of fornication also affects the body with corruption. The man who repents of heresy is at once cleansed by his wholehearted conversion. The one who returns to God from fornication usually needs time and tears and fasting to get rid of the pleasure and heal the wound in his flesh and to stabilize his mind. If, however, both remain unrepentant, they will certainly have the same condemnation. So interesting uh, way of looking at things. And, you know, I know people probably have a lot of opinions about this. Uh, I think the thing that stands out uh, maybe for us, though, is the involvement of the self, not just an idea, as with heresy, uh, even if it is tied to a kind of pride or vainglory, that if the error is revealed and the person humbly acknowledges it, you know, John Muser, the, the author here of the footnote, says, you know, through humiliation. Uh, if the the error in their thinking is brought to light and they are humbled by that, they will turn back to the truth and embrace it. And there isn't that ten same kind of tendency that is rooted in an appetite that would draw them back into that heresy once it's been exposed. Whereas with the sins of the flesh, uh, the wounds can be much deeper, that the habit of mind uh, the habit of thought and all of the underlying attachments that then lead up to the committing of the sin or fo foster the inclination can become so deeply rooted in an individual that the, the healing uh, that is needed can take a much longer period of time. And uh, we've talked many times before here about the uh, effect of pornography in our own day and age and how deeply rooted it can become. It can become like an addiction uh, for individuals. Uh, and addiction doesn't even seem to be 
quite strong enough of a word. I mean, it takes hold of them, you know, for hours upon hours a day, even. And uh, and even when it sickens them and they want no part of it, there's still this pull back to it. And again, it's often something that individuals have been exposed to, uh, as we mentioned here, as early as the year uh, of eight years of age. And so when these kind of things become deeply rooted uh, uh, within the mind and the heart, how does one uproot them? except through the ascetic life, through tears, through deep compunction, through penance, through fasting, time. Uh, now we might say that, you know, both uh, the confession and the Holy Eucharist are healing sacraments. And so we, uh, I think in our present day would acknowledge that you know, where there is true contrition that there then, uh, and where there has been confession that the returning to communion is something that can strengthen an individual within the spiritual battle. Uh, but I think what the fathers also saw is that uh, the sin can be so deeply rooted that to receive somebody back too quickly can then lead to uh, um, you know, the reception of uh, communion in a way that is unworthy, uh, sacrilegious uh, kind of reception, uh, especially when the addiction to this particular sin becomes so great. And so better to have them focused upon certain forms of penance that gradually uproot the passion and bring healing uh, before entering into the most radical sign of our commun union and communion with Christ. And uh, so, you know, I, I understand in some ways the, the, the wisdom or the logic behind that. Understanding what Holy Communion is for us, what it means for us to say yes to this reality that we receive at the altar and how we are to prepare our minds and our hearts to, to receive Holy Communion. I think this has been lost on us for a couple of generations now. And I, I think one of the reasons that it was lost to us is because a kind of maybe a, an overly legalistic and moralistic approach to confession that made it kind of meaningless, that there wasn't a kind of healing counsel uh, that went along with the grace of, of the sacrament that would help individuals overcome these particular kinds of sins. The more that we've broke, broken away from the fuller spiritual tradition. Uh, but here, you know, I think when we are looking at the monks, you know, these are in particular to whom John is writing that, you know, they had, you know, embraced this vowed life, uh, and embrace the ascetic life. And even among them, when a vow was broken, when their vows were broken, they, they would enter into a place called uh, the prison, if you, you remember, this place of extraordinary uh, penance uh, that went beyond even what was typical for the monasteries of the day and uh, that would foster such a deep uh, compunction and contrition in order to seek to uproot 
what led them into the to break their vows to begin with. And uh, and so there is a kind of wisdom here, uh, you know, as jarring I think as the the thought or the idea might be. I think there's a kind of wisdom here that we have to take hold of. Again, I think our first step isn't to do this. Uh, I think our first step is to draw individuals back into the fullness of the spiritual tradition and the healing that it can bring the ascetic life. Uh, and, uh, and, but prior to doing that, I think we, uh, when we aren't offering uh, the science of sciences, if you will, to the science of the saints, to the faithful, uh, we aren't serving them in such a way that they're able to receive the grace of the sacraments in such a way that it bears the greatest fruit for them in that spiritual battle. That going to confession, as we've talked about before, can often bring about a kind of emotional catharsis, that there can be a kind of shame uh, that's tied to particular sins that uh, drives a person to the sacrament and to relieve themselves of the weight and the burden of that. But it doesn't necessarily carry with it repentance or the perfection of repentance, uh, where there is this, uh, uh, where there is no backsliding and where one turns away from everything and any attachment that can lead then to the particular sin. Uh, again, this is where Pope Shenouda's work, uh, The Life of Repentance and Purity of Heart, is exceptional in laying this out for us, what that, looks, what that looks like for us, the perfecting of repentance over the course of time and what true purity of heart looks like for us in terms of our capacity to love and to love virtue as well as, as to love others. There are a couple of comments here, so I just want to back up a little bit. Rory writes, being in the moment with prayer incarnate with God, we are never alone as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Is sin a correction? Uh, well, sometimes uh, God allows us to see the, the fruit of our pride, the consequence of our sin. And so in his permissive will allows us to experience that sin uh, in order that we might be humbled by and turn back to him. And uh, uh, we often lose sight of what you describe here, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that this is what we've been uh, redeemed, uh, what has been given to us through our redemption and through the cross. And we rarely, again, see ourselves in light of that, what we become in and through our baptism. And, uh, and uh, this, when we don't see that, I think it affects the whole way that we enter into the spiritual life, including the way that we deal with our sins and also receiving Holy Communion. Anthony writes, when I look at the history of heresy, I see that mental and physical air often go together. Examples that come to mind, Marcion and other Gnostics, Cathars, Lutherans, uh, Munster, Munsterites. Is that like Herman Munster? I don't think I've heard of the Munster. <laughs> Munsterites established a kind of commune in the area of Munster. They uh -huh. held their wives in common. They held their property in common. They, 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 were, they were not good people. All right. Interesting. 
I, I honestly, I can't say that I'd heard of them. Uh, Right. They're kind of Anabaptists. The Protestants don't like to acknowledge them. They're like the crazy, crazy Mennonites. Right. Yeah, and you know, I think that's it's a good point because I think what we've seen uh, in the writings of the fathers and even the modern elders is that it's through purity of heart that we gain the, the gift of discernment, our capacity to see divine truths. And uh, so lacking purity of heart could lead us then into a distorted view of what God has revealed to us about himself. And so you're right. I mean, there can be a direct tie there. And I think that's why we would want to read, you know, this carefully and that footnote carefully. But again, I understand what he's getting at there, you know, about what, how deep of a grip this particular sin can have upon us as individuals, just because of how we, how we are made as human beings, the specific kind of appetites that we have, both in terms of sentimentality and sensuality. Louise writes, as a Catholic child, I was taught that we were forgiven if we recognize our fault, repent, suffer from having caused pain, which would reduce repetition, and to repair in reality as much as possible. The last two requirements seem to be be dismissed these days, especially the third one. Uh, uh, reparation? Is that the one you have in mind? Yes, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's completely fallen out of the language of Catholic Christians, whereas, you know, most every religious community took this, uh, like an almost an added vow or as a part of their religious life of, of making reparation, not only for their own sins, but the, the sins of the world, the sins of others. And so they would take upon themselves penance, not only for their own healing, but for the healing of the church as a whole and individuals within the church. And uh, right after the, when the scandals broke, uh, there was a cardinal that came forward with a beautiful document uh, called Adoration, Reparation, and Spiritual Motherhood for Priest. And uh, it was beautifully written about this kind of vocation within a vocation, uh, that this kind of spiritual motherhood has existed throughout the life of the church, where there have been these individuals, and often within re women's religious communities, who would embrace this penitential life, this kind of spiritual motherhood to give, bring about a kind of rebirth spiritually within the church. And uh, that he had suggested then that uh, communities be uh, formed around this uh, spirituality, uh, but that uh, places of perpetual Eucharistic adoration be uh, established in every single diocese throughout, uh, throughout the world. And that this spirituality of reparation would be fostered in light of everything that has taken place. And it went into the dustbin. There were only a few people over the course of these last 20 years since it came out, or 25 years, that I know of that gave it a deep reading. Uh, there were a good number among the lady that had already been living it. And so when it came out, I think they gravitated toward, towards it to embrace it. 
but in terms of the church church wide uh it got no traction whatsoever and i think it was dismissed as you know maybe a kind of piety of the past rather than taking up as a means of bringing healing to the church and you know this is so often the case i think the church in modern times will gravitate to measures that are that are come to us of, from the secular world. And not that that makes them uh, uh, lack value, but sort of this psych uh, avails, you know, for individuals entering into seminary. Everybody in our diocese, if, even if they read at mass and have no contact with children whatsoever, have to go through an FBI check, be fingerprinted, and go through this training, uh, in order to serve in any capacity, any ministry within the diocese. And, uh, and not that I'm saying I disagree with those things or think they should be jettisoned, but uh, I, I think it lacks vision in the sense of where true healing comes from and where the church is really strengthened. It's strengthened in the spirit and through repentance, conversion of life and heart that begins with us with our own hearts and you know when you turn it into you know satisfying you know certain programs and getting certification for these things uh it becomes meaningless and it gives this false sense of assurance uh that it, it's going to make sure that these things never happen again well i mean after reading everything that we've we've been reading all these years we know that that's an illusion that it's only the most profound conversion of mind and heart that uh, you know prevents us from falling in the into the darkest and worst of things and uh, i don't know why you know after thousands a couple thousand years we you know have not embraced you know, th this wisdom Ambrose writes, it goes both ways. Some heretics go the way of overly puritanical approaches to the faith. Yes, that can be true. And yeah, and again, I think that's why we don't want to, you know, grasp hold of the footnote in this kind of sweeping way. I, I think what I would want us to see in, in this is more what he, they're saying about the impact of the sins of the flesh upon us and how difficult they are to uproot and uh, why at times then the penances that were given uh, were so intense and it wasn't meant to punish as so much as it was to, to heal and uproot what had put down deep roots within an individual. Uh, let's see here, Ashley put up a quote. Uh, the thought troubles me, and there's a lot more to be said, I think, but the penance of not being permitted to receive Holy Eucharist because of the sin of fornication makes a lot of sense. Being that we receive the whole Christ, if someone has developed a deeply rooted habit of fornication, they would have a kind of morbid contraceptive disposition of soul that says, I want the pleasure of receiving Christ in the Eucharist, but I do not want his effects. Even if the soul is fighting against the sin, the person still needs to be freed from that disposition before seeking a union with God. They have trained their body and thus their soul not to seek above all other things. 
Obviously, it's not so cut and dry, but I can see what, what the footnote is saying. Yes, uh, again, I think it was be beautifully stated uh, that, you know, we often will receive the Eucharist in a kind of consumerist fashion, you know, that we go to church precisely to receive this and to take it as if it is something that is owed us rather than discerning the truth of what it is that we are participating in. And, you know, all the way back to Paul, we are warned against this, you know, not discerning the body, I think in the wider sense that uh, Ashley is uh, speaking about here, uh, but also certainly in terms of uh, not wanting the effects of that grace uh, to be active in, in our life. And, you know, Paul says bluntly, you know, we eat and drink, we can eat and drink to our own condemnation. And so, you know, what is driving this isn't necessarily a kind of morbid delight in doling out penances or the fact that people can't receive Holy Communion. I mean, it's something to be mourned over and I think to aid in the mourning of one's sin and one's negligence perhaps in the spiritual life uh, and also to prevent uh, an individual from falling into the greater sin. Uh, and throughout the course of their life. Uh, a couple other comments here. Brad Smith, thank you, Father David. I've attended another Zoom session. God bless you, Brad Smith. You're very welcome. Uh, are, there decree, are there degrees of repentance? Uh, I think in my reading, I haven't heard it expressed in this way of degrees. Uh, I think there certainly are levels of perfection and imperfection, uh, where, you know, we've truly moved to a kind of constancy uh, in, uh, in repentance and this understanding of a constant turning toward God and his love and towards his grace and away from the things of the flesh. In other words, in, in terms of the things that le would lead us into sin. Uh, and uh, and it's our failure, I think, to pursue that perfection in the virtue of repentance, our failure to love it in the same way that we've talked about loving other things, fasting and other spiritual practices in order that the fruit of them might come to perfection within us. So with repentance, there should be this love that we have of it when it's turning us toward God and away from those attachments, again, ever so benign on the surface, but nonetheless open us up to the things that attach us to sin. And th that requires a, a discipline over the course uh, of the years and a willingness to examine our hearts and the kinds of inclinations that do rest there and can be found again in the things that are ever so benign on the surface that we would so love god and i, I love that passage from i think it's i don't know if it's first or second corinthians five it's first or second corinthians uh, five but uh we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to christ that part of our love for the Lord, our desire for the Lord and for virtue 
it makes us willing to embrace this kind of asceticism that we will take every thought captive and bring it before Christ for his blessing or his judgment. We will lay it before him in the full light of the truth in order to see it for what it is. And I think, all, again, all of us know when we are truly attached to something, when we want something for ourselves, that taking the thought captive and bringing it before Christ for his judgment, to lay it out uh, in the light of truth, to bring it before a spiritual director or confessor and, and lay this thought before them and, uh, and to look at it honestly. The, once we are psycho, psychologically immersed in it or that ball has begun rolling, it becomes very difficult to draw back from it. And, uh, and so, you know, the, again, the kind of, the way that the spiritual life is being spoken of here is not something that we hear very often in our own day. And, you know, just as we were talking a little bit ago about reparation, that I, I think the more disconnected we come from the spiritual tradition as a whole, we, we lose hold then of all these different elements of the spiritual life that affect our healing and reparation, seeking to repair the wound that uh, has been brought about by our sin, again, is something that escapes us. We, I think we think of it in terms of paying something in a legalistic form. I need to do this kind of penance, say five rosaries, in order to satisfy this kind of legalistic, uh, you know, uh, uh, we're, you know, paying our, our dues, as it were, or, uh, but it's not really something that is going to be reparative if our heart is not given over to it. You know, what's the value of saying five rosaries as a penance if you simply rattle it off and there's no love and devotion there directed toward God and we just speed our way through it to complete it? And, you know, there is this notion in our day, too. I've talked to a lot of priests that, you know, the penance should be able to be completed before the person even leaves the chapel. And, you know, when you, when you think about offering real spiritual guidance to individuals, you're, you're pretty much tying the hands of a priest when you tell him that. You know, you're pushing him into that position where he says, say, you know, three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys. Uh, or to give these really ambiguous penances, you know, pray for this or that, you know, but uh, that really does not involve the full self. And, you know, when priests, again, are not living in light of this tradition themselves, you know, how is it they offer any kind of a counsel within the confessional that goes beyond the superficial and that is really going to bring healing? There's a kind of, of, of infidelity there, and I don't want that to sound overly harsh, but I think in the terms, in the terms of way, the way that we are formed today as priests and the culture within the church of, you know, that has been so shaped by the world that we want things quickly. We want to see results spiritually quickly. And so we want to move quickly to, uh, you know, contemplative prayer while avoiding 
this kind of deeper conversion and healing from the passions. And similarly, you know, when we engage in the sacraments and whether it's receiving Holy Communion and preparing ourselves for it, or when we go to confession, taking up the penance that, you know, that allows that grace then to repair the wound very deeply, we're unwilling to give our, ourselves over to it. And so a kind of pervasive negligence and laziness has, you know, has, has really taken over the spiritual life of the church. And I don't think this is necessarily a new thing. It may have existed, you know, for, for quite a while, but I, I think we, we see, see it pretty fully in our own day. And I, I don't think we can be surprised when people are leaving the church and asking, well, you know, what, what fruit does it bear? You know, why, why bother? You know, Fulton Sheen has said, you know, of course you get nothing out of going to mass because you don't give anything. You don't, you don't bring anything to it. We need a new, we need another Fulton machine for our day. Uh, David Swiderski, I have to admit the Desert Fathers helped me tremendously as they have practical things to overcome temptations, situations, or vices. I wish in the confessional there was more application of those, especially to younger people who give up before knowing of these weapons in the spiritual battle. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that when, even when you start offering frequent confessions, uh, the lines grow very quickly. And where I lived previously, there was a period where we had confessions three times a day before the 7.30 mass in the morning. And, you know, it was going, you know, almost an hour before it's, you know, who goes to confession? Somebody asked me at 630 in the morning. And I'll tell you, quite a few people do. And then at midday, you know, lunch hour and then before the evening liturgy. And then when they get filled up and the lines are incredibly long, then I think there's this pressure uh, to rush through them to get as many people through as you possibly can, even when you have multiple priests hearing confessions. And so I think part of the issue is, is that priests are uh, pushed more and more to engage in a kind of ministry that uh, is overly weighted on administrative concerns, just keeping things afloat. And uh, I get that, and I'm, I don't want to be critical of it, but I think it prevents what you describe here the, uh, of, of priests being priests you know, of allowing, of being able to function in the way that is needed for the church, uh, to offer spiritual healing and to focus upon being able to do that and, and trusting the other responsibilities uh, to those who have the background and the skills to do it. And, you know, and seminary never prepares you for all those administrative things anyways. And so, you know, priests often, you know, make a wreck of what, what is entrusted to them or don't know what to do. They're like deer in the headlights. And you start putting younger and younger guys in as pastors of churches right out of seminary when it used to take 25 years for a man to be made a pastor of a church. That means he would serve under you know, a, a very skilled pastor for many years as a parochial vicar 
before he would be given responsibility for his own parish, that he would learn how, you know, how to run a parish. And now, you know, men are being given two, three, four, you know, parishes and sometimes, you know, thousands, you know, a couple thousand people uh, to think about. And, and then you see in the bulletin a half an hour confessions or, or confession by appointment. And uh, because then I, I think priests have to be willing to sit there and have no one come uh, too. And I think, you know, again, when we get into sort of this kind of utilitarian view where, you know, the priest is fulfilling this function. And so if he's offering confession, nobody comes, you, start, you drop it. You know, nobody's coming. And, uh, and the priests become unwilling to sit there and wait. It seems like a waste of time to them. So, you know, I think when we move to this more of a corporate mentality and functioning uh, of the church, we, we move away from being able uh, to offer the kind of healing that is being described here. Art writes, I recently heard about priests telling people in the confessional, be brief, be contrite, and be gone. Oh my, that's horrendous. I hate to laugh at it, but it's terrible. And, you know, I've, I know people have had these experiences of confession where, where they leave weeping because they are treated in that fashion, that they are rushed through when, you know, they come in after having prepared themselves and bearing a great weight on their shoulders. And instead of finding an ear, uh, a listening ear, and any uh, count positive counsel, they're rushed in and out and often cut off and mid-confession too. And often then never coming back because of it. You never know as a priest. I mean, you can get somebody who comes back to confession after 40 years and think of that if they had that experience. Be brief, what, what was that again? Be brief and be gone, be, be brief, contrite and be gone after you know, 40 years of absence from the sacrament. Uh, so we need to do something with the culture in the church. Bonnie Lewis, yes, I had a priest say, just get to the sins. Uh, the church as an ER and priests or elders as spiritual doctors, right? You know, this vision of the church as a hospital that comes to us from the East is a very important for us, one for us to regain, a place of healing, uh, you know, rather than a place where you go to get good fish on Friday night or, or pierogi, I should say, in the East, Eastern churches. Uh, I hate when I go to scheduled confession period in an unfamiliar church and no priest is there. Uh, yes, that happens often. And unfortunately, I have mostly seen the opposite problem, exponentially more people coming up for communion than are going to confession. I think many people are not well catechized and don't realize the gravity of receiving communion without ever going to confession. Uh, Ambrose Little, not our job to be judging others, which is true. I mean, uh, I don't know if you're talking about the overall discussion or the idea of this, uh, uh, and not, I don't want to judge harshly because I think so often it has more to do with the culture uh, that exists within the church and the disconnect from the spiritual tradition. I don't think it's ill will 
on the part of priests. And I know most of the priests that I talk to find great frustration and not being able to function uh, in, the full, in the fullest capacity or feeling like they can. Uh, Michael writes, I don't mean to judge those people. I just think it a big problem so that many are unaware it isn't their fault, precisely. So yeah, there is a greater problem. And I think it's, it lies within, uh, within what we are doing here. And what we come to see so often is our disconnect from that healing wisdom that comes to us from the lived tradition of the church, you know, the, the, the lives of the saints, their writings, what they teach us about what it is to embrace the grace of God and the sacraments and to live that life fully. And uh, so our responsibility is for our own conversion of heart. We, we do, uh, and I'm sorry if we got away from that in this discussion, but I, we do read uh, these readings with the eye to, towards ourselves and our own conversion or repentance of heart. And I don't think it's possible for us to read through these without it piercing our hearts, uh, unless we're, you know, they're pretty hardened by pride. I think everything that we've encountered, you know, has been deeply humbling. So, so it, that brings us to 835, and uh, there's much more here to look at, and uh, I was hoping we were going to get to it here this evening, where he begins to break down how temptation uh, begins to manifest itself and work on us, the initial uh, sort of uh, approach to us and how we'll enter into converse or conversation with it, and then how we are drawn deeper uh, into the, the, the temptation or the thought, uh, but we'll get to it in, in the weeks to come. Okay. Any final thoughts or comments before we end here? Cindy Moran writes, any thoughts about the book called The Philokalia and the inner passions, uh, the inner life on the passions and the prayer written by Christopher Cook? Uh, I have the book. I haven't read uh, his yet. Uh, I've certainly been reading The Philokalia for years and uh, everything that John Climacus writes here, one would find uh, similar wisdom within the Philoclea and the fathers of the Philoclea. Okay. So why don't we stop there for the evening? And uh, thank you again for all of your comments. Excellent as always. And I look forward to next week. Uh, just uh, for heads up, uh, I do have, uh, there are clergy days next Monday and Tuesday. And I believe I might not be able to have the Evergatinos group on Monday night. Uh, I have to confirm that. So be watching. Uh, I'll have Ren send out an email either way uh, to let people know uh, ahead of time. Okay. So why don't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.
The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.